Hi, this is Tamsin Green. And this is Dan Abuha. Hey, don't step on my lines. <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay? It's Sunday, March 8th, right. 2020. Right. And uh, we always think of Ralph Abuha. It's the anniversary of my father's birth, 98 years ago. Right. Passed away a few years ago. Right. Yeah. So, uh, fond, lots of fond memories there. And uh, moving right along, and we got uh, we got another birthday coming up this week. Hmm. I'm looking at you. Mark Snyder. Really? Yeah. Um, okay. I think Friday the 13th. Okay, I'm not going to disagree. I could be with wrong. Disagree. But uh, happy birthday, Mark. He's not going to be 98. That's what I no. know. No. No, he's not. He's a young uh, guy. He's a very young guy. Yeah. He's just a kid. Right. Enjoy your birthday, Mark. Enjoy, uh, you know. That's this. Consider this your present from uh, Tamsin and Dan. Uh, all right. So we, in terms of, um, we've been busy. We've always been busy, right? We started right in last Monday. We uh, traveled to uh, New York City, uh, and we went to see a uh, many adventures in New York City. Yes, cla- oh, well, yeah. Yes. You should talk I, about I that. I actually went to a pigment store. Mm. With uh, Lisa Walsh. There aren't many pigment stores. Uh, apparently not. Yeah. And pigment is what you use to introduce color right. into other media, like oil paint, watercolors, tempera, this is, uh, etc. Cremers, So right? it's, it's the color essence. Nice. And sometimes it's natural. Um, many different kinds of black mm-hmm. there were from... Burned vines, burned bones, uh, you oh, know, God. Um, et cetera. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and there was ground up lapis lazuli, malachite. Yeah. Well, let's look. What's great about this? And then there were synthetics. Anyway, it was, not, not that it was I a went. little niche. It was a little crazy niche of a store right. with uh, many magical colors right. in it. Here, I understand it's sort of a German store for... Uh, Real, uh, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to say fanatics, aficionados, people into pigment, into painting. Uh, well, making your own right. paint, basically. In, in, in some store, which I presume wasn't so terribly large, in like 28th Street or something like that. 29th Street. That's the kind of thing you find in New York City. Exactly. And, and a lot of other stuff. And I was afraid to go there by myself. Oh, you went with Lisa. But I went with an artist. And, and she's tough. So that I had some cred. Exactly. And uh, apparently a lot of... Uh, not only creative artists, but conservators go there because well, they're trying to right. create, uh, recreate uh, various kinds of color and paint that were used in works of art that they're well, repairing. I talked to my friend Harry, the former artist, about this, and he said, you know, that stuff's not cheap. And uh, I think that's right. He also said that... Uh, I would say... yeah. Harry's still an artist. Yes, okay. Even even if he's not supporting himself. Well, I agree with, with that. With art. And I would always think of <laughs> Harry as an artist. It's fine. Point of the story is it's not cheap. The other point of the story is Harry told me, he said pigments are nice, but when they invented uh, paint and tubes, it was a big advancement, and he takes advantage of that. So he's, he's not a pigment guy himself. But, uh, you know, right. for those who are totally into uh, it, like yourself. Know. He's a house paint guy. <laughs> Paint guy. Well, I worked at Pearl Paints. Um, okay, so and then uh, we got something to eat. We went to see uh, something at Classic Stage, something they call Classic Conversations, uh, in which they have, in this case, Michael Cerberus, an artist, a performer, uh, in a conversation with John Doyle, who's the artistic director at uh, Classic Stage. Who- so it's your opportunity to sit in on an intimate. Yeah, conversation. intimate, right? With with you know, John uh, is a famous director. Produce he doesn't produce. No, I would call him a director. Director, yes. And uh, he's Scottish. Oh, Tamsin, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I'm that, asking that, that, questions. Yeah, I, I think he is actually. Um, and uh, um, Michael Cerverus. Michael Cerverus has been in certain productions with him, so they know each other as well. Michael right. Cerverus has been in very accomplished a lot of things. He uh, Tommy. Going uh, back the a few years. Opera. The rock opera, yes. Uh, Titanic, we enjoyed seeing him in Titanic years ago. We love that musical. Uh, he was in Hedwig and the Angry Inch. He was uh, in a revival of Sweeney, Sweeney Todd. So, and he was in Fun Home. Uh, he's won two Tonys. He's big time. He's a big star. And in he Broadway wears his Circles. hair similar to you. In other words, he pretty much shaves his head 
uh, which means he's an extremely good-looking individual. Yes. Uh, and he was an interesting guy. He's an interesting guy. So, you know, uh, we've seen him in, uh, in where he's generally singing something quite sophisticated with a, almost an English accent, certainly a, a gentleman uh, is the kind of person he's usually playing when we've seen him, as it happens. Uh, but uh, it turns out he has more range than that. He's from West Virginia. Right. And he says he grew up with a West Virginian twang and he plays the guitar and and these conversations are punctuated by little performances he did six different songs the first one he did was tommy pick up the guitar and uh acoustic guitar. Uh, acoustic guitar um and he sang a number from tommy it was you know and he sounded like a rock star um and he didn't sound english at all because he's not <laughs> but then he told his story which uh Explains a little bit how his accent changed. He, he went to Exeter Academy, went to Yale. Well, let's start yeah. at the beginning. Yes. I'm not going to give a lot of details, but his dad yeah. was a music professor. Right. So he grows up in the business. He grows up in the business. Although he doesn't really consider himself a musician. Right. Compared to the kind of Even now. people he grew up around. Except, so here's the yeah. secret. Here's his secret weapon. He's a wonderful actor, but many people are, but he can sing. He never quite explains how he got that, except he took lessons at Yale, but he can really sing. Well, if your daddy is a music professor, right. you might grow up with an ear. He, he, and he, I think if you have an he, ear, he did, but it he helps didn't, you sing. But he didn't grow up singing. And uh, he says he's kind of developed it accidentally as a sideline at Yale. And uh, he thought of himself as an actor when he went out into the wide world. And look, we're not going to take the time here to tell his whole life story, but he's an no, interesting guy and can, an intellectual you guy. You can spend the money and go to one of these events yourself. Exactly right. Spe uh, but here, here's the thing, though. Yeah. He grew up in pretty rarefied circumstances. There's no question. He, it's not you like... Know, to go from Exeter yeah. to Yale yeah. and then, drama. And then graduate school. Yeah. And then... Uh, um, right. And, and so he, he's, he's kind of... Uh, he's got quite the education. He's quite an educated guy. He seemed like a very nice guy, a very interesting guy. Um... So it's interesting he, listening to him. He did a lot of uh, um, regional theater. Right. Um, but it worked out for him because one of the first regional productions he did was at La Jolla in California, and that was Tommy. And they said, hey, let's take it to Broadway. And that's what got his Broadway career Shazam. going. Shazam it is. Well, it, Shazam for guys talented as he is. So in any event, it's interesting to hear that kind of informal conversation and performances. And you, you know, use the word intimate. It's a small group. Maybe you have 60, 70 people there on the theater. No, it was more than that. Okay, 80. I mean, uh, and uh, so that was interesting. Uh, I will just say uh, that there's another one coming up. It's Judy Kuhn, the classic stage. It's on May 17th, which is a Sunday evening at 7 o'clock. Uh, Judy Kuhn has been most recently in Fun Home. You hear her on the Broadway channel because she was one of the people in, involved in chess, which was initially just a recording before it was a play. And people, there are people that are devotees of chess who love the music to chess. Yeah, I would love to see chess, actually. Oh, yeah. There, are, there have been one or two performances. But in any event, so Judy Kuhn's... Of course, a, I'm always wrong. A real, I wanted a real to perform see Mac and Mabel. Yeah, right. I was wrong about that. That's so. not always wrong, but... Uh, I'm pretty much wrong. Yes. My point is Judy Kuhn. Uh, May 17th at Classic Stage. If you're interested in this kind of thing, you just get on the website and you can uh, you can go. So we went to that on uh, Monday. And then uh, last night, uh, we went to the movies, right? Right. We saw The Way Back, uh, the Ben Affleck movie. Uh, it's gotten a lot of publicity because... Yeah, I mean, just a few nights ago, we were saying to uh, Tom Walsh, yeah. our friend... Oh, that movie. Right. Who wants to see that? Yeah. And, of course, we ended up seeing it. Well, you know, there's a couple of reasons uh, we saw it. And I'll come back to the subject in a minute. Uh, one is it got a decent Rotten Tomatoes rating. It was 89 across the board, both critics and uh, audience. It's pretty good, actually, which is very good. But the other reason is, again, I'll come back to, uh, there's not a lot to see. Uh, so, in any event, we went to see uh, it. And uh, it's gotten a lot of publicity because Affleck's had personal... Uh, demons, as what they like to say in the business, uh, alcoholism, maybe even drug use, and he's working his quote way back, and so he was the natural hire for this movie about a guy who's uh, a former basketball star who meets some misfortune, who you know uh, dives into alcoholism and works his quote way back uh, through the opportunity of being the basketball coach at the high school where he was a star. 
Uh, that's the, the basic story. And it sounds a little too cute, maybe a little too saccharine uh, on the surface, but I didn't find the movie too saccharine at all. Did you? No. I mean, it was predictable in many ways, Yeah. but uh, lots of stories are pretty predictable, mm-hmm. and how they're played out is what makes the difference. Mm-hmm. And I know that you felt this was had a gritty aspect. Yes. That uh, made it uh, engaging. Right. I mean, he's, he's, he's turning around the fortunes of a, a high school basketball program, in his case, uh, a Catholic school, and the kids is presented are losing every game, and they don't look very talented. And uh, on the basis of his coaching insight, basketball knowledge, uh, they rise to something above mediocrity. Uh, but the bigger story is really about uh, his fight with uh, turning himself around and getting hold of his personal right. problems and his alcoholism. Um, so, you know, I thought it was, uh, I thought it was good. I thought it was very engaging. Um, and it's, it's poignant. And I thought, it, but it's not a big movie. I, I would call no. it a small movie, which is not a criticism. It's, you know, it's a small budget movie. Uh, but it's, uh, as a character study and as a story within the character study, I thought it, it had sort of the, it was real. Yeah, you know, what scene I like the best is when he's talking to uh, one of the players. He's giving him a ride home. Right. And the player says, you know, my dad told me that you were a superstar and offered a full ride to such and such a school. To Kansas, yeah. And uh, you didn't go. Yeah. You just threw it all away. Yeah. And he said, why'd you do that? And uh, the Affleck character goes on to say, well, you know, um, to explain it in terms of, uh, turns out, the only thing that uh, my dad cared about was not me, it was my basketball. And so uh, I just quit. And the kid says, so that was basically an F you to your dad. And he said, yeah, yeah, I guess so. And that was an interesting little story. Uh, and it sort of points out that idea that... Uh, you know, you shouldn't be going through life just uh, kind of trying to respond to everyone about you. You kind of have to well, live it's not, it's not your everyone. own life. It's his father. Uh, but yeah. Yeah, but still, it's letting other people make decisions for you um, based on reacting to what you think. I, you know, I agree. Look, he was thinking. So it, it was moments like that, I felt, that took it another step, another level. But that, uh, beyond the, just the feel good, right. turning the team around. Although the turning the team around, now you thought the basketball was pretty realistic. Yeah, it was. Um, I thought it was, but I thought it was so nutty that uh, you know, first couple games they lose, yeah. and he's devastated, yeah. and then they win every single oh, game oh, oh, after. Well, that. but let me let me you point know. something out about this. That, that about, was pretty Disney. You know, let me point something out about basketball coaching. Okay, this was a ragtag group of guys, the kids playing, who were totally disorganized. Uh, he walks in and he has... And undisciplined. Undisciplined. He walks in and he has instant cred in a way no one else would because he is the all-time hero of that school. So they're listening to him in a way they would listen to nobody else. Okay, don't forget that. But also, he's a guy who feels at home in basketball, so he can talk that way. Yes, but it's much more that they see him. (laughs) Yeah, let me finish. That's point one. Point two is he knows the game, right? So he's organizing them in a way that they're going to be spaced properly and they can have some kind of framework. And number three, I can tell you from coaching, even though it's a challenge, the idea of bringing a terrible team to a medium level is more achievable than bringing a medium team to a championship level. So he takes a terrible team and brings them to a medium level. They beat a lot of medium teams. Now, the one game that was unbelievable was the last game. That, well, that they end up in the championship. Right? No, they end up in the playoffs. Okay, which well, is that seems pretty... You can, if you have a 500 record, you're in the playoffs. So, okay. uh, so you think that's believable, conceivable. Yeah. Uh, it, it was put push the boundaries. But, you know, how it, it's still kind of rare, isn't it, for a player yeah. to really have the insights of a coach. Well, he wasn't going to make the team any better than he made. You know what he had? He had one superstar kid, Okay. That's what made it work. If he doesn't have that kid on the team, all right, then he can't do anything. But that, that kid group. didn't even know he was a superstar. Yes, he spotted that. Okay. So Affleck comes in and spots that. Right, and you're and, going to and, talk and, later about more about player coaches. But, but, but I'll tell you one. I'll say one thing that struck me as real is when yeah. he said he talks to this kid. They have a critical game, critical moment, and they're down by a point, And his his star brings up the ball, dribbles it, 
and they run some play and he passes it to some guy in the corner. He hits a shot and they win the game. And he talks to, uh, he's giving the kid the star a ride home later. And he says, that was, the kid's got was great. We won the game. He says, nice, you made the pass. He said, do me a favor. He said, what's that? Next time, don't make the pass. He said, what do you, what do you, the star said to him, what are you talking about? That's the play. That guy's open. He said, I don't care. You're my best player. Best player shoots. And that's true. And you asked me if I was surprised, and I was surprised, yeah. because how many times have I sat in on lectures right. to everybody about, pass the ball, pass the ball, pass the you ball. You do, you do. And there's but, always some uh, wiseacre kid on the team who thinks he'll never miss, right. and he won't pass to anybody, right. and the whole lesson is, uh, yes. Except you're for one, not the best on but, the but, team, right. so but, you got to pass. Yes, <laughs> that, that kid's not the best player. Right. He's, in the last minute, you let your best player play. So that that that's the way the game is played. So that's the way back. So, but, but in any event, so the way back, I think it's kind of worth seeing, although you know, it's not a miraculous movie. It's not a super movie. It's not going to be nominated for Best Picture. But it, it's, it's worth seeing. But as I said before, there wasn't a lot to see. So there was, you know, there was an article in the... Um, journal about how movie theaters are struggling a little bit and what they're doing to respond. And, you know, this article was written by John Stoltz in their business section. And he says, well, you know, movie theaters can give up or they can do something about it. Uh, So the movie theaters we have in this area have given up, right? I mean, they're kind of awful. Well, it's both. I mean, clearly the place we went last night, it was a big theater and it struggles. Yeah, uh, yeah, but they're, 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 they just give up. They don't have people taking your tickets. They have kind of lousy service. Well, they're, they're struggling. They're trying to economize. I, I understand. You sit down and uh, instead of having the movie start on time, they're still showing advertisements for 10 minutes. I mean, it's kind of awful. But the other way to do it, as this guy points out, is you can invest in your product, try to make it better. And the most, you know, by having better sound, better pictures, better offerings of the snack bar and these reclining seats. Now, I don't really care too much about reclining seats, but it's a different attitude to say, no, no, I just have to make the product better. And he claims, Stoll claims, that that's rewarded, that when you refurbish the theaters with the reclining seats, you're losing seats. But the truth is, 95% of the time, you're only selling 15% of your seats anyway. And also, you, the seats they are make re- money. reserved. In those and the seats are reserved. Those seats are always, right. uh, you pick them out and you reserve it, right. whether it's online or when you get there. Yeah. So you're guaranteed. Right. So, But look, I'm not, I'm not saying what people should do, but it, it's like any other product which is under pressure. You know, whatever you're selling, whether you're selling bananas or you're trying to sell movie tickets, you either say, look, I'm just going to get every nickel I can out of this dying business, or you say, I'm going to reinvest it and try to make it a superior product. And, you know, those are the two roads open to. Uh, the other thing I ran into that was kind of interesting that's related to this, there was an interview with Aaron Sorkin in the Times Magazine section about movies generally and how do you attract an audience or not an audience in the so-called dying movie business. So at Aaron Sorkin is the writer. Well, most recently of, of To Kill a Mockingbird. Right. But, um, but also... Of A Few Good Men and of notably The Social Network. And what was the TV show he had? Uh, he had The West Wing. The West Wing. Right. Okay, so he is a guy with a lot of credibility yeah. in terms of writing. And he's, he's a great writer. Uh, so, so here's what he says about right. this. He says, I don't think, yeah, he says, with the exception of A Few Good Men, because it had Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson, exception. He said, this is Sorkin. I don't think any movie I've ever written would be made today. And I'm including The Social Network, which won all kinds of Oscars and was a financial hit. These days, it's easier to get a $100 million movie made than a $30 million movie made. So the only movies that, that you see are $100 million movies or $3 million movies, which is just very easy to finance and to get going. But the $30 million movies don't get made. And the odd thing about it, those so-called middle movies, is when you're watching the Oscars and they're showing you the clips from the great movies of the past, those are all middle movies. And those are not being made. And that's the way the industry is going. So there's no... Well, because they're happening on television. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And he says, that's fine. But there's no... He says this, what you've heard uh, Scorsese say before. It's no substitute for getting a lot of people in a theater and reacting as a group to whatever the film is. That's That's a superior experience. And that's not going to be... Whatever it is, it is. So, you know, this movie, uh, The Way Back, is probably a $3 million movie, honestly. But that's fine. I still think it's worth seeing. Really? Yeah, I, that I costs see how nothing. You can do anything for three million. Well, five million depends. With a star in it. I don't think Affleck got paid too much for that movie, but okay. uh, I don't know. Um, but you have the big story. You have the big story. With everybody <laughs> talking about voting, 
Yeah. You know, voting. You have an insight into voting, which I had uh, was unaware of. Yes. So I saw a very fun article from this week in the New York Times by Elizabeth Preston um, that was titled, How Animals Vote. Yes. So, you know, more and more we learn about all the interesting, so many interesting things about animals, either about their brains or about their social functioning. Uh, So it was really fun to read this article and see how animals, you know, make group decisions to do various things, Mm -hmm. right? So I'm just going to share a couple of them uh, that caught my eye. One is honeybees. So when honeybees are deciding to split off and develop a new hive or something, you know, um, they send out scouts, okay? There are certain honeybee scouts who go out looking for, um, you know, viable locations. And when they've found something they like, a scout comes back and for the rest of the hive, they do a certain dance, you know, which is spinning around and waggling, et cetera, and flying. And uh, that describes where and what it is somehow to the rest of the crowd. And if people are interested, if people, if bees, if other bees are interested, other bees, they join in the same dance. Only bees. Until there's like a critical mass of uh, bees doing this waggly dance. um, That means they'll all go to this other place. So that's one way. Of functioning. Another uh, was talking about meerkats. Yeah. And uh, meerkats are so cute, you know. Anyway, it turns out that meerkats kind of roam around in a group, not especially close to each other, not like a little close herd. They may be 30 feet apart, but they're basically in a group. And, uh, you know, they'll move around, they'll get on the move to do something, and then they'll stop and rest. And uh, then there's this certain call that they have, this mew, that means, okay, I'm done, I'm ready, let's get back on the move. And if you have at least, uh, you know, um, you need at least three to be making that noise uh, to get on the move, and uh, then people will move, which makes some sense. It's like, any idea in a group with people, right? right? If one person says, well, why don't we get pizza? You know, maybe it doesn't change anything. Right. But if three people say, hey, yeah, that's a good idea. Boom, you go. So the meerkats have that, the mew. And then there was also African wild dogs. Now, African wild dogs uh, have this great rally thing they do. Jump, greet, you know, um, get together, um, And maybe they'll take a snooze afterwards, or maybe they'll go for a hunt. And the way that's decided is by a sneeze. There's a particular sneeze that they do that means, let's go hunt. Now, how many dogs need to do that to mobilize the group? Uh, if, If a dominant dog does it first, then for some reason, only, you know, two or three other dogs need to sneeze, and then everybody else will go, okay, let's hunt. If a subordinate dog in the pack uh, introduces the sneeze, then it seems you need at least like 10 other sneezers to catch on, and uh, then the group will mobilize. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. So uh, it's all kind of fun. There were other examples like ants and baboons uh, and so uh, it was a great little um, you know, lesson in uh, voting uh, from the animal it, world. It sounds more complicated than the primary system. It's more like a caucus, really, when you think about it. It's, it's yes, a, that's exactly the way they put it in the article. Is that right? Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, which means it's complicated. We How know those, do you create a caucus? Those yeah. caucus systems don't always work smoothly, so you got to work on it. So that was fun. Elizabeth Preston. Yeah. How animals vote in the New York Times. All right. Uh, well, let's uh, let's go back to basketball because we've gotten off the yeah, subject. Yeah, because we did spend the whole weekend watching college watching basketball. basketball. Well, college basketball is interesting. So there's an article. It is kind well, of you interesting. always say that. You always say that uh, when you're watching a college basketball game, it's look, look look how these guys are playing. Look how much heart is in the game, right? As opposed to the pros, because you know they may be quite nonchalant. You know they're doing it day in, day well, out. Well, especially when, when you see, uh, I mean, the tournament's going to be coming up. By the time we put this broadcast up, the NCAA tournament will have begun. 
And that's exactly what that is. That is that true? It starts this week? It starts a week from Tuesday. So, well, no. a, week, a week from yeah. then. I'm sorry, a week from then. Yeah. So we're building up to we're it. We're building we're up to it. We're getting in shape. Get your brackets ready. Yeah. I know I your mother is. I got my jigsaw puzzle ready. Yeah. So I can be doing that while you're watching yeah, everything. You, you say that, but you watch college basketball. You know that. Uh, so there's an article in the Times about uh, Swarthmore, which is kind of responsive to your point about does is it is it uh, plausible that a coach comes in and takes a crappy team and makes them a real good team real fast. And if you read the article fast, uh, that's what went on at Swarthmore. This guy Landry Kosmowski comes in and he takes a, a school which has been losing for 25 years and makes them a top Division three team just like that, snaps his fingers. And then you read the article a little more closely, and you realize he got the job eight years ago. And what he did Another was— Another overnight success. Yeah, exactly. And here's what happens in eight years. Uh, in eight years, you introduce a new system. You introduce a new way of doing things. Uh, and, and you get all new players because uh, he, he's recruiting his own players. The, the guys who were there uh, when he got there— his first three years, they're winning an average of seven games a year, seven out of thirty. But you 30. still have to be able to attract uh, a better player. I, listen, right? I'm not, I'm not, not giving this guy credit, but I'm saying I'm crediting you for the point that the, walking into the high school basketball team or any team and taking the same guys yeah. and making them winners in three weeks, it really pushes the boundaries much more than saying I'll ride it out with these fellows while I put in my system and I recruit. Uh, so he's got a different kind of athlete coming in, and well, that's what he's got. What were you saying about they had some kind of touchy feeling? All right, so here's, there are two things good. going on. So the t- Times, I'm not blaming the Times. This is not criticism. But this is the way to present the program. Sure, they got different players. Uh, that's all great. But what, what really is interesting is the practices that he's employed. And what he's done is he has all kinds of what he calls uh, positive uh, reinforcement enforcement uh, triggers, I'm just turning the page here, uh, to foster bonds among the team. So uh, what does that mean? That means uh, that during each timeout, each of the players grabs, I can't put it that way, uh, sort of touches the shorts of the guy next to him, sort of on the side, uh, to show that they're all close. They're all bonding. They're linked. They're, They're linked all the time. Uh, and there a, were pictures of the right. guys standing Holding each other's shorts, yeah. yes. Uh, they, they talk about the fact that at the end of a practice, the team gathers to issue put-ups. The opposite of put-downs, Kosmalski said, pointing out something a teammate or coach did well that day. How's that? Uh, there are all kinds of rituals to make things as positive as possible. And, and, why, and where does this come from? Kosmowski searches for ways to improve the program, largely uh, on the basis of a TED Talk that he saw a few years ago by a fellow named Sean Acor, whose book The Happiness Advantage lays out how positivity can lead to a more productive work environment. Okay, so Ben Affleck did not read that book. No, he took a different approach. But this guy says, Ben Affleck took the opposite approach. He did what every coach does. He did what every coach does when they have a bad team. He says, we're going to press. And uh, play a pressing defense. And the way you do that is you condition your team. And you saw the team running stadium steps the whole right. time. That's what you do, frankly. That's what I would do if I was coaching that team. Uh, well, you're not exactly Mr. Positivity. Yeah, right. So it's, it's, the harder it is, the more, the more we're going to accomplish. He's got the opposite approach. He says, look, it's, it's about uh, you know making things as positive as possible, developing an optimistic outlook. That's what's going on. All right, so... Maybe that works. The team is almost undefeated this year and has become a powerhouse. Maybe it's the guys he's recruiting. Probably it's a combination of everything. What it does point out is that basketball is an extremely psychological sport. Okay? What you do, you do whatever you do physically to get the guys ready. But if you can create a psychological environment such that they feel that they have an advantage, such that they feel they're going to win because there's some secret sauce that you have cooked up with them and they've been participating in, you're helping the team. You're helping the team a lot. I mean, because the psychology is self-fulfilling. Uh, and right. the best example of that is the so-called phenomenon of the hot hand. You've heard this that phrase, the hot hand, all the time, and it comes from basketball. Oh, and is that what they were talking about? That's what they were talking about. So, you know, I might have misunderstood that. Yes. So, the, you know, when a guy... Let me see the warm hand. Yes, hits a shot, 
and then uh, hits another shot. You hear people say, give it to the guy with a hot hand. He's hot. Give it to him. He's going to hit his next shot. And there has been much debated over the years in psychology that is that really a thing? Is that real or is it not real? And psychologists have debated, debated that for years. And uh, if you ask any basketball player in the pros, like LeBron James, he says, yeah, they, they can debate all they want. Of course it's a hot hand thing. Of course you give it to the guy with a hot hand. And there's an article. The guy who's in the zone. The guy who's in the zone. There's a guy, an article in the journal about a guy named Mark Turmel who invented one of the all-time successful video games of all time, which is uh, some years ago. It was NBA Jam. And he says the reason that it was successful, the reason it was successful, because he had a so-called hot hand element in it. That if uh, a player hit a couple shots in a row, the so-called voiceover announcer in the game would say, oh, he's heating up. If he hit the third shot in a row, flames would come out of his hand, <laughs> and he was guaranteed to hit the next shot. This became a zillion-dollar seller, and he all attributes it to the hot hand. So, you know, uh, again, it's I a lot of a psychological. Probably, uh, you know, this positivity thing uh, uh, and the hot hand thing yeah. can be applied to a lot of aspects sure. of life. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Think, uh, and, you know, years ago I had read something about uh, when you're teaching students, because yeah. that's what I do, you, uh, to some extent, you um, encourage them to believe they can do this. Right. They can, uh, you know, conquer this material, et cetera, and they will. Um, and, and it's even more concrete if you can say you, one of the reasons you can do it is because the exercises we've been doing translate into that success. It yeah. never fails. And if they see a little success while they do the exercise, they begin to believe it. Right. So, well, that, that's what this guy at Swarthmore is doing. And so, so you're holding right. the shorts. That's why we're winning. Okay. And, uh, you know, if they believe that, maybe it uh, works. No question. All right. So here we want to, we have a big investment in a food segment here. Yes. Yes. Go ahead. Because we've been eating a lot. Yes. But possibly not the right food. Oh, no. Yes, we have. Okay. Big article by Mark Bittman and David Katz in the Wall Street Journal. We actually know what we should eat. And uh, Bittman's point uh, is basically that uh, most animals eat the right thing for their species. Yeah. And that we used to know that. But we kind of lost sight of that with the 20th century, late 19th, early 20th right. century development of all these mass-produced foods. That many of what, much of which is not really good for us. You know, right. the junk food, etc. Of course, the caveman didn't have junk food, um, uh, etc. And so forth. And we have these uh, processed foods has really caused havoc. So uh, Bittman actually writes a lot of articles about you know, what we should eat now. And he does point out that uh, there are a lot of, you know, studies about all of this. Mm -hmm. that, and they all seem to contradict each other at this point, you know, because right, right, uh, right. we have in this room two people. One, you know, I am a, you know, firm breakfast eater and believer in breakfast. You are not. Um, and uh, there are studies saying breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And uh, then for a while, another study came out recently saying not so much. Um, in fact, uh, you know, people are into this idea of, you know, fasting over a certain number of hours in the course of a day's eating. So that's uh, better done if you don't eat breakfast and just eat like uh, lunch and dinner. And then as soon as that was published, another, you know, breakfast is the most important meal right, of the right, day right. study came but, out. But, but Bittman, so you don't really know. But Bittman points this out, but he doesn't have any solutions. He doesn't... Uh... Well, he chooses what studies he believes in, yeah, basically. But he's... Uh, his solution is that you should eat... Uh, a lot less meat. Yeah. Okay. That, uh, in fact, uh, basically, what he says is, yeah. eat beans. Yes. All right, beans well, will do it for you. Well, that's beans, the best food. Uh, you know, give you protein. Right. He says fish is okay. Yeah. But you should really eat beans. Right. And you should eat a lot more uh, vegetables because vegetables, you know, plant based are protein. available right. and uh, replaceable and more efficient in terms of uh, the environment, in terms of the cost uh, to raise, etc. So there you have it. Okay. Eat some beans. I mean, we eat a fair we, amount we beans, of beans. But, and, I mean, but he's not an extremist. He doesn't expect anybody to eat exclusively beans. He just says, it's, you know, if you're really interested in this, think about that. Eat well, some more he basically beans. doesn't believe in a lot of things yeah. anymore. Dairy, right. meat, yeah. uh, etc. He's had uh, great success with uh, a vegan diet, so 
there he is. Well, we, I was noticing a restaurant review in Brooklyn the other day talking about eating something other than beans. Uh, and uh, what was the restaurant's name? I forget it. Le Crocodile. Le Crocodile. The Crocodile and, in Brooklyn. And it's a brasserie. In the Wife Hotel. And the funny thing is that we discovered this uh, brasserie. No, 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 no. Brasserie is a big, bustling place. Okay, what did we discover? It comes from a word meaning brewery. All right. All right. And it has all the things you expect, oyster, soup, choucroute, etc. Yeah. Okay. We apparently have yeah. discovered a bistro. Oh, there you go. Sorry. Sorry. Which is a smaller place, uh, you know, historically family owned, not quite in this case, uh, and specializes in like steak frites, yeah. uh, beef bourguignon, uh, white beans, <laughs> etc. You know, those typical things. Well, what's the, the place in Princeton? The pr- place in Princeton calls itself Christine's. Bistro, a French bistro. Oh, okay. All right. Okay. All right. And and it's part of a bigger operation. All right. So, and it's a little slick. All right. But the point is, the we review, like it. The review of the crocodile. The well, crocodile. Let, let, let's slow down yeah. a little bit. We like the place in Princeton a lot. So then I see the review of the crocodile, and you tell me, is that advertised a brasserie or a bistro? Brasserie. Okay. And because you, it is a big. You saw the pictures. It looks fantastic. All right. Well, that's it's my a big point. Sort of industrial space. So I'm reading this there review. There are banquets. There are tables. Right, right. Sort of a Pete, tile floors. Pete Wells review. Three stars. Three stars. Over the top. Ecstatic. Unbelievable. As the greatest place. As he was of Peter Luger's. Right. He a few loves this place. Ago. He adores this place. And they have some of the same offerings. As the place in Similar Princeton. offerings, but with a slight creativity and attention to more detail. More than slight. Yes. More than slight. Yeah, and but it's not, it's not so creative that you, it's unidentifiable. No, it all looks great. Yeah. So, I mean, even the French onion soup looks unbelievable. Right. So, and I say to you. Why are we screwing around right. in, the, in this, this commercial is crazy. little joint in Princeton? This place is 10 times better. Costs no more. They give the range of the expense, Price the prices, pretty similar. pretty similar, and it's just it's kind of crushing almost. We're going to go back to this place in Princeton when this place in fa- Brooklyn is so fabulous, and you say to me, because, "Don't worry, don't worry, we'll never get into the place." In exactly Brooklyn. right. If okay, we were in Brooklyn, we'd never takes, get in. It takes us twenty minutes to get to Princeton. Well, yes, you know, I know. I'm not really talking about takes, us. You know, two. It could take two hours to get. But to Brooklyn. But the point is, if we were in Brooklyn, we couldn't get in. There That's are, what I tell myself. There are reservations available within the next. Couple of weeks. For the crocodile. Yes, ten forty-five. Oh my God! At See, night on a Wednesday. Okay. Um, I feel better so, already. Uh, so I'm it's not completely gonna, out of our league. I'm not. I'm not going to feel better we'll about a restaurant. Never enough get... to score yeah. a reservation there. Okay, that's fine. Um, but uh, it's out of my mind. In all fairness, we've had some excellent meals at this, albeit commercial Jersey-esque yes. uh, interpretation oh, yeah. of a bistro, yeah, yeah. and. And frankly, we do go to places yeah. that are more creative and aesthetic yeah. uh, in New Jersey. They're harder to find than in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, the place we love to go in Milford, New Jersey, yeah. um, Canal House Station. Well, that's a unique. You know, place. could easily be in Brooklyn, but they don't serve okay. dinner. Yeah, they don't. They do not serve alcohol. That's don't serve dinner. Then they don't serve dinner. Yeah, that's a bigger gap than they don't serve alcohol. But yes, all right. So let's go to the uh, the the, uh, the knives point, which I thought was interesting. Great uh, sort of headline at the front of the off-duty section of the Wall Street Journal this weekend. Why pay twenty-four thousand dollars for a kitchen knife? Yeah, because we are and all so doing that. I didn't quite not realize that knives were costing that much. Well, uh, but there was a story of there's this great knife maker, Bob Kramer, yeah. and he finished some knife. He put it up on his website at auction, yeah. and it started out like ten thousand. And it finally sold for twenty four thousand, right, which was pennies compared to recently. Um, he had made a knife for Anthony Bourdain, yeah. And so when Bourdain's estate well, sold that's, that that's knife, a different, that's a it celebrity sold for knife. a quarter of a million. Yeah, okay. quarter of a million. Yeah, that's, so that's anyway, silly. there's an article. It's like uh, a um, do you know? Uh, should we be <laughs> buying? Uh, knives for $24,000. And of course, it's part artwork. It's part, you know, right. uh, collector's item, etc. cetera. Um, but of course, there are other more reasonable knives to be had uh, by great uh, knife crafters. 
um, that may only cost $1,800. Yes, but you came up with a much better idea, which is that they talk about knife sharpening. Right. Well, so I've had the same, uh, first of all, can I just mention one thing? Sure. I looked at the pictures of these knives, and of course, you have chefs buying the fancy knives, but you also have um, speculators. Really? Really, because there's a demand Mm -hmm. uh, for Kramer. I think there's like a three-year wait mm-hmm. to get one of his knives. Okay? okay, So some people are buying knives from these uh, famous makers with the idea that they'll hold them uh, for a few years and then you know, maybe sell them at a huge mm-hmm. uh, profit. So, of course, the knife makers are not thrilled about that. Uh, most of them are feeling, I'm making this to be used. Right. To, and uh, some of them are beautiful. They're called Damascus knives. And they have this um, sort of uh, very, the, the makers fuse different kinds of steel alloy together. Uh, to, there are two things you want. You want um, something that can get very sharp but you want something that can hold that sharp edge, okay? And that's hard to accomplish in the same steel. Mm-hmm. And by having these different alloys, they're able to do that better and better. Mm-hmm. And the Damascus, I guess, comes from the idea that they end up having this almost kind of marbled, fabulous look to them. So anyway, there are more um, reasonable options, $400, 200 mm-hmm. okay, um, so, you know, uh, so good. Uh, maybe I'll save up. I've had the same knife since restaurant school mm-hmm. in the late 70s, and it was only a Wusthof. <laughs> uh-huh. And I only had it because that's what the store in the restaurant school sold. Right. Okay. But I was thinking, gee, you know, I do know how to sharpen them myself. I sharpen them myself on my own stone, but it uh, couldn't hurt. To have a really super sharpening job done. Now, I assume that in places like New York, there are knife sharpening guys on every other corner somewhere, mm. possibly. Possibly. Um, and I do see knife sharpeners around here, but it's sporadic. Like the third Tuesday in November, mm. uh, there'll be a knife sharpener at uh, you know some place or uh, you know some uh, kitchen store. Uh, or um, farmer's market right. or something like that. Uh, but uh, they, in this article, actually had uh, some suggestions of online services you can go to that do a very good job, uh, including uh, something called, uh, what was the one that appealed to me? Knife Aid. Mm-hmm. And so you send your knives off, and they come back in six days. That's a good which is not bad. So I may avail myself. I think, of as that you said, every because, twenty years, uh, there you go. It's worth it, right? And then, and then I would keep it up on my own, right? But at least I would be starting from possibly a, a super starting place. All right, I'd, I think you ought to do it. Uh, I'd rather you do that than bought the uh, sharper knives. Twenty-five or thousand dollar knife. Yeah. Uh, the uh, all right. Coronavirus. We're not going to make light of coronavirus. No. But. Um, couple things that are just kind of interesting I, I am to me. getting notices from my schools that about, I teach at about the potential that we can right. be closed down and yeah, what that, can we accomplish that, o- That's online. fair in terms of preparation. They have an article here in the Times called Handshake Jitters Delay Danish Naturalizations. And what this article is about is that uh, for people who want to become naturalized citizens in Denmark, there is a ceremony. And uh, the ceremony uh, includes a handshake. Uh, with the authorities. Literally, that's required, uh-huh. a handshake. And they have uh, a, uh, a directive in Denmark that people shouldn't be shaking hands because they have 23 cases of coronavirus in Denmark. And as a result, uh, these people all showed up for their citizenship uh, ceremony and they were not allowed to become citizens because they couldn't do the handshake. Uh, and there was a discussion about whether they can waive it or they can't waive it. And uh, Denmark apparently is functional as the U.S. in some ways couldn't get themselves around the handshake requirement. So everyone had to go home. And they said, which is a real hardship on that some people. That is so weird. They yes, couldn't figure out a Couldn't figure out how to do it. Couldn't fake the handshake. Is that strong a requirement? Someone, one politician said, can we replace the handshake with the namaste gesture? And uh, that did not uh, carry the day. So there is that. Um, what I found even odder uh, was there was an article called Coronavirus Outbreak Gives New Life to an Old Movie. There's a movie made in 2011 directed by Steven Soderbergh called Contagion, which is a fictional account of a pandemic 
fictional. Yeah. Nine years ago. And uh, this movie was never a particularly popular movie. And, it was, you know, these catalogs exist for people to stream it. And, and Warner Brothers, being the producer, listed it as 270 among its catalog titles. Well, in the last month, it's jumped to number two because everyone's renting uh, this movie about pandemics called Contagion because it's informative, I guess. Uh, and they actually quote Barry Jenkins. I'm sorry. You yeah, was... No, I was going to say, is it true? I mean, I, I mean, well, does it can't it be true. It's made no, up. I, I understand, but does it? Uh, can't be does true. It, I understand it's not true, yeah. but is it a good thing or a bad thing? Is it is it starting all kinds of rumors that are ill-founded? I don't, I don't know. Or, I, you, you, know you have to it, make that judgment. Is it making people more comfortable? No, because there's a pandemic that kills 26 million people. Uh, Barry Jenkins, the writer and director of Moonlight, rented it with his girlfriend Lulu Wang, who actually was the writer and director of The Farewell. So these are people reasonably intellectual, and he says, I pay $12.99 to watch a 10-year-old movie, which I've never done before, but, quote, it felt like I was watching a documentary that is all these movie stars playing real people. And I'm saying to myself, how can you feel that way? It's It was 10 years ago, and it's made up. Right. That's exactly my problem. Yes. Okay, because uh, not just in the world of movies, but you see things that are, um, you read you know, historical fiction, yeah. and then you begin to believe the right, fiction. Right, 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 Okay, so well, uh, that that's my concern. Everybody's going to be watching this and thinking and panicking because this is what's going to happen. Well, the article, the Times article says, look, there are a couple things in the movies, the measures that they take, uh, like social distancing and the like, uh, and some quarantining resonate because it's kind of things they're doing here. But the other thing that resonates is uh, and this is a big uh, theme of the movie, is the work of conspiracy theorists profiting, profiting off the spread of disinformation. A big theme of the movie is the spread of disinformation. Jude Law is a character whose sole purpose is spreading rumors and whatever about so the virus. So that he can make money. So that he can make money. But so, and maybe that's happening too, I don't know. All I know is that Scott Burns, who wrote the Contagion script, says he actually has gotten inquiries from people. He is one that says, uh, one person asked Mr. Burns if he thought it would be safe for him to travel to Hong Kong. <laughs> and he wrote back, he says, I'm a screenwriter. I don't know. All right. So then there was an article in the Times, finally, which is not about the coronavirus, but by coincidence is getting a handle on worry, stress, and anxiety. And uh, that's a little of an overstatement of what the article does. But it does distinguish, this was useful to me, the difference between worry, stress, and anxiety. Worry is what happens when your mind dwells on negative thoughts, uncertain outcomes, or things that could go wrong. Worry tends to be repetitive, obsessive thoughts. So it's all in the mind. It's productive to some degree because you want to focus on problems ahead of you, but it becomes unproductive if it becomes obsessive. And they talks about what you can do about it. You can sort of mentally say, I'm going to allow myself 10 minutes a day to worry. Uh, you can write down your worries. Uh, you can push yourself to come up with a plan of action, but you have to be concrete about it. That's distinguished from stress. Worry is psychological. Stress is physical. Oh, really? Yes. So stress comes from prehistoric times. When you hear the, the prehistoric monster or, or whatever, the saber-toothed tiger coming your way, uh, it prompts a behavioral response. It fires up your limbic system, releasing adrenaline and cortisol, which helps activate your brain and body to deal with the threat. It's real. It's real and it's physical. Okay. Anxiety? And you get a rapid heart rate, etc. What do you do to control stress? Exercise. Drink. Exercise. Oh, yes, drinking really? too. Yes. That's disappointing. Yes. Okay. And anxiety. Anxiety is basically a combination of the two. Uh, stress and worry, but it's most often described in our society a response to a false alarm. You're getting worried and your body's reacting as, as, as if something's happening, but there's no saber-toothed tiger because okay. it's the worry that's replacing the saber-toothed tiger. So you're overreacting. You're overstimulated. Uh, all right. So bottom line, uh, to bring a to tie a bow around this, what do you do to deal with worry, stress, and anxiety? Get enough sleep. Eat regular, nutritious meals. And exercise, move it's, your body. It's the same advice for everything. I'm it? sorry, this is the New We're York Times. Keep All right. Free from so, cancer. if there's anything that comes out of the coronavirus that's positive, and nothing really, uh, the Geneva Auto Show was going to take place this week 
and it was canceled. So you're saying, how is that positive? Geneva Auto Show, a chance for all these uh, automakers, particularly high-end, to show off their wares. Um, and it's positive because when they canceled it, what happened was the folks who ran the Geneva Auto Show gave all the manufacturers a chance to put together a virtual press day. They each got to do a 10 or 15-minute video from their own headquarters showing clips of their cars, showing their executives describing what they have new coming down the pipe. And they were all assembled in uh, a particular uh, website that you can use to access all these things. And it is, I looked at it, it's kind of fantastic. It's called, I'll just say it, it's gimsvirtualpressday.ch. GIMSvirtualPressDay.ch, and you have each of the presentations from the manufacturers from Bentley to Porsche to Hyundai, uh, and this is for you, Armand, to Aston Martin, who shows their new Aston Martins coming down the pike as if you were at the Geneva Press, uh, the Geneva Auto Show. And it's, I thought it was kind of fascinating. Um, and then finally. And finally, I will just end the quote going back to basketball. All right. Because this is what I think a coach of basketball should really do. There's a book by Michael Feinstein who's written a lot about college basketball, in particular Bobby Knight in Indiana. But this is a book called The Back Roads to March. It's about schools in the Northeast, which aren't necessarily the most glamorous schools. And he focuses on a lot of basketball at the Palestra, which is the, sort of the cathedral of college basketball in the Philadelphia area. And he says, uh, Mr. Feinstein sums up everything uh, in the words of a plaque that hangs inside the palestra, quote, to win the game is great, to play the game is greater, but to love the game is the greatest of all. And that's what a coach, in my view, should do, is instill a love of the game. Uh, so that's, that's what we have in, uh, in our podcast this week. This is Dan Abuhoff. And Tamsin Granger with Dan. T- Tabson and Dan read the paper. Your first build, honey. You know, I, I, I'm a giver. What can I say? Okay. See you next week. Thanks.